Happy Monday, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update, where we're bringing you weekly news on the world of commercial real estate, the only channel doing so. My name is Tyler Cobble. I'm your host, and uh, we've got an exciting night lined up for you all tonight. Uh, before we dive into everything, wanted to let you all know that we are currently hiring. We have a lot of positions that need to be filled um, here at the Cobble Group slash Hamilton. We're growing rapidly over the past I guess seven months alone, we've acquired over $25 million in assets, which means that we need to continue building a team so that we can continue building that. So we are hiring, uh, let's see here, we've got an investment broker, somebody to help us go out and continue finding and selling deals. Uh, we've got a leasing rep um, that we're looking to hire, somebody with experience, probably three to five years. We've got over half a million square feet of office and retail in our portfolio now, so we could definitely use some assistance uh, managing that uh, process. We are looking to hire an investment analyst, somebody that has uh, underwriting experience uh, that uh, can come on and help us analyze all these deals. It's a lot for just me uh, to be handling moving forward. So uh, definitely need somebody on our team um, assisting with that. And then I'm also looking to hire a brand manager, somebody to come on and help direct the brand. Uh, and continue to grow all of the content that we are creating here uh, on this channel, on Instagram, uh, everything that we're doing to educate y'all on how to invest in commercial real estate. I really enjoy doing it. want to make sure that we continue to do that. And uh, one of the things on our list this year is a course. Uh, we're going to be writing another book, uh, pretty much the guide to investing in commercial real estate for beginners. So really excited to be getting that out there. And, and again, part of that is continue, continuing to build the brand. So if you or anyone you know uh, might be interested in that, uh, the link is not currently live right now, uh, but after the episode sometime later tonight, it will be. Go to tylercobble.com slash career. Uh, it will also be in the upper right-hand corner under, I guess, maybe the about section of our website, tylercobble.com. Um, and then that will give you a, a a little more detail on each of the positions that we are looking to hire and uh, and where to apply, how to apply. Looks like we've already got a question coming in from Dukes of Prepper County. Hello, Tyler. The underwriting Excel combo on your website, would you recommend that for analyzing multiple assets at once or is it per asset? So Dukes, the way that the underwriting spreadsheets that we have uh, for sale on the website are set up is, is on a per asset basis. Um, if you're which is typically how it's done, right? You're going to go in and fully underwrite one project at a time, and then you're going to have a completely separate underwriting for a different project because you're going to have a different capital raise, you're going to have a different capital stack, um, and the project's probably going to be structured differently. So I would recommend having a separate underwriting spreadsheet for every single asset that you're working on. Uh, one, just to keep it clean and clear uh, which project is which, uh, but two, because the, the spreadsheets aren't really set up to do multiple projects. You can have multiple buildings within an asset, uh, but you can't really have multiple projects. So there you have it for that. Uh, appreciate the question. Um, you can get those models at tylercobble.com slash models. Uh, those are our underwriting spreadsheets. In the next week or so, we're going to be releasing our single tenant net lease investment model. Actually, maybe multi-tenant possible too. I'll have to double check that. But excited to be doing that because we've been showing you guys that spreadsheet for a while. Needed to make sure that it was absolutely perfect before we went live with it so that y'all can start underwriting triple net investment deals. But uh, all right, let's go ahead and dive into the Nashville market. So let's see here. 
This is from the Nashville Business Journal. Beeman site buyer releases renderings and tweaks plans. Uh, this is a pretty big site that's located just outside of the Gulch. Uh, development plans have changed and new renderings have been released for a slice of prime Nashville real estate. Looks like according to new public filings, uh, the project spearheaded by Chicago's Marquette companies is now slated for around 550 residential units, five buildings, uh, three of which are eight-story and two of which are six stories, at least 15,000 square feet of retail space, up to 440,000 square feet of non-residential space, and up to 200 hotel rooms. Pretty exciting. I love seeing high-density mixed-use projects like that. Uh, it's honestly the, the future, in my opinion. Everything needs to be mixed-use. That's how you keep everything. Uh, I mean, look, you've got a, kind of a live-work-play on-site, right? So you can have a live-work-play development within a live-work-play neighborhood, which in my opinion is going to be the most attractive property in the area. Tazwar is jumping in saying, very nice to see you on the Investor Channel. Nice to see you as well, Tazwar. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's see. The new project specs are a change from July's filings, which detailed 600 units across four buildings of 10, 8, and 7, and five stories. Um, so it's they're just kind of shifting a little bit what they're doing with the project um, in terms of the actual mix. It's not like a huge, huge change, uh, but pretty exciting to see um, what they've got going on over there. Let's see. Marquette's project uh, plants include classifying at least 10% of the units as workforce housing, which allows for lower rents. That's really exciting to hear. In my opinion, um, it, it, we need more of that affordable housing in Nashville. So, so glad to see um, developers are looking to do it. Dukes of Prepper County saying thank you. Absolutely, Dukes. Anytime. All right, moving on. This next article is from Fox 17. Real estate firm reports rise in home prices and rent likely to continue into 2022. Nashville's been on such a tear the past year, two years, five years, 10 years, that uh, it's, it's, of course, of no surprise that everybody thinks that that's just going to continue um, on into next year. It uh, looks like Marcus and Millichap's research brief on housing finds buyers across the nation are already facing limited options, giving a low supply of homes for sale, which combined with lumber costs has pushed prices higher. Nashville has, uh, what, six-tenths of a month of supply in the market. If you're out there trying to find a house right now, it is very tough. Uh, so, of course, it is of no surprise. Looks like currently the average price for existing homes is 344000 which is wild to think about. I mean, Nashville, I guess not even five years ago, the average house was 250000 That's a huge increase. Uh, and it looks like it was an increase of 24% year over year alone. The average price for a new home has jumped by 18%, setting a high of $383,100. Wild. Uh, let's see. More households will stay in the renter pool longer, which should generate interest in the 335,000 apartments due in the nation's major markets this year. The growing demand for apartments will push rents higher. The average effective rent in the U.S. is expected to jump 2.8% in 2021, to $1,451 a month. That's good news for Nashville because I believe our average uh, market rent is a little bit lower than that. Maybe maybe actually pretty close to that. Uh, so there you have it. Good news for the housing market in Nashville or bad news, I guess, if you're a retail buyer trying to find a place to live. Uh, but that is good news, right? It's uh, 
we need to keep building in Nashville. That's, that's a story there. All right, this next one is from the Nashville Post. Biometrics Venture plans to hire 140-plus employees. Second version of IBT setting up shop in Cool Springs. A lot of people don't know this, but Cool Springs is basically, I think it has more headquarters than any other district in the state of Tennessee. Uh, cool Springs is very, uh, it's, it's, uh, has a very high density of corporate uh, headquarters, um, which is surprising. You'd think that downtown Nashville would have that, but Cool Springs apparently has just done a better job of attracting those. Let's see, a startup marketing identity authentication and background check services, among other offerings, and backed by a veteran local executive, plans to hire more than 140 people in Franklin in the coming years. Executives with integrated biometric technology and state officials on Monday said IBT has picked the Franklin Park development to house its headquarters and operations center. The company, which plans to invest $2.3 million in the project, is led by Charles Carroll, who built a first version of IBT about 20 years ago as an alternative to traditional fingerprinting processes. Pretty cool to see. Uh, They're talking about how Williamson County is a great community for their growth. Um, Let's see. Talks a little bit more about the company. Um, Looks like they launched uh, in 1999 and grew quickly in the wake of the September 11th terror attacks. Uh, Of course, obviously, after that, security and digital security uh, very heavily increased. Pretty exciting to see. I mean, you know, Nashville is just such a, a growing tech hub. We've got a, a wonderful base here of the, of the employees uh, that these tech companies want. And also the cost of living is so much cheaper. They can hire labor out here for cheaper than they can in these major cities and make more money, right? Which, of course, every company does. But that talent is also living really well. So why not, uh, why not go for that? Glad to see that, that Nashville's tech uh, sector is continuing to grow. All right, moving on to Market Watch. This week, we are going back to California in ULI's Emerging Trends in Real Estate, looking at San Francisco. If you're not familiar with San Francisco, there it is on the map, uh, towards the north end of California. Let's see what they have to say about San Francisco. Wow, they... Obviously, talk about them a whole lot. Okay, so in terms of overall real estate prospects, they are number 60. So they're very towards the, I mean, almost the end of the list, because there's only 80 um, on this list. And they're almost in the standard deviation below the mean, which basically means that they are kind of, they're average, uh, but really they're on the verge of being below average. So they're below Detroit, they're below St. Louis, below Cincinnati. Uh, pretty interesting to see some of the cities that are on the list. Let's see where they are in terms of home building prospects, 74 out of 80. They're very, very low, to, very low towards the bottom. Um, I think that we talked about San Diego a little bit ago, and that was a good example of how not every part of California is struggling right now, right? Obviously, uh, California got hit really hard by COVID and real estate took a massive dive there, but there were parts that are doing well. It looks like I would imagine today we're going to be talking about the negative effects of what's going on, uh, in California with San Francisco. So just so you're more familiar with the San Francisco market, it's part of what ULI deems the establishment. Uh, these are cities that have been around for a long time. They've 
they've been up there for a while in terms of you know demand or popularity. Uh, and it looks like it is within the specialized economy sector of that. So uh, in there is also Oakland, San Jose, and Washington, D.C. So if you think about those three other cities that are in there, I mean, look, San Francisco is very heavily a tech market. Uh, so that's probably why they are a very specialized economy. We don't need to dive too far into the rest of the local market perspectives. But in terms of investor demand, they're a 3.53 out of 5. So they're, they're a little over half. Uh, they're in the top 50% on this list, which is not bad. Um, but uh, that's still, you know, again, below Tampa, St. Petersburg, below Jersey City, below Phoenix, Orange County. And, you know, I'm not even going to mention Austin, Nashville, Charlotte. I mean, that's, those are easy. All right, let's look at uh, this next article from Million Acres, 2021 San Francisco real estate market investing forecast to kind of dive into a little bit of why or what's going on in San Francisco. So known as the Golden Gate City, San Francisco is considered by many to be the cultural and industrial hub of Northern California. Although the city only covers uh, 46.9 miles, it's home to nearly 882,000 residents, making it the 16th largest metropolitan statistical area in the U.S. Let's see. It's also known for having one of the highest per capita incomes in the U.S., which makes it a very lucrative area for investors. That's probably why, even despite all of the, uh, the, the numbers looking bad in other respects, investor demand is still relatively high. Right? It's just like New York. I mean, San Francisco is San Francisco. It's not just going to disappear overnight and become something else. So, of course, investors are probably going to feel relatively secure placing their capital there. Let's see. Rental vacancies are up. They are currently at 8.5%, uh, up from 5.5%. Oh, a 5.5%, a 5.5% increase year over year. Uh, let's see. Definitely has to do with coronavirus cases, as well as a jump in number of companies that have shifted to remote work. Problem is, when you are a company that, or a, a city that is very heavily focused on tech companies, tech companies have more of an ability to go remote than just about any other type of entity. So chances are good they're going to stop leasing office space. Let's see. However, as the vaccine rollouts continue to escalate, looks like it could just be a short-term issue. Landlords may need to offer open units at lower price points to fill some of their inventory. Uh, looks like the median rent price is also down 8.1% year over year. That's huge. I mean, typically rents will increase 3 to 5% year over year, so it will take them a number of years just to get back to where they were last year um, with that growth. Housing supply is holding its own. San Francisco currently has a 2.1-month housing supply, which is better than the rest of the nation, uh, which reported a mere 1.6-month housing supply. Um, in addition, there were 410, blah, blah, blah. Look, it, that is also relative, right? A 2.1-month a uh, housing supply is better than the rest of the nation because there is more housing for people to go buy. That means that there is less demand for housing in San Francisco than the nation, where which has a 1.6-month housing supply. Like I said earlier, Nashville has a 0.6-month housing supply. So that just shows you the demand for housing in San Francisco is actually well below the national average. Unemployment rate is making a comeback. It looks like it uh, is currently at 6.7%. 
above the national average of 6.3%, but important to note that it hit a high of 13.2% at the height of the pandemic. That is unbelievably high. That's almost as high as Nashville got back in 2008, 2009. I think we hit like 14, give or take. And that was a bit of a different uh, different hit. So coming in at 13.2% is really high. Um, let's see. The decline is an indica- indication for investors that rental vacancy issues that they're facing are likely a short-term problem. Um, looks like more renters may be beginning to secure jobs in the Bay Area, which means that they will need to sign leases. So uh, could be a good sign for growth in San Francisco. I mean, look, the reason that we talk about you know markets that are also currently bad in our market watch is because there may be an opportunity there, right? I mean, maybe you can go in and buy a house or buy an investment in San Francisco right now at less than what you could have gotten it for a year or two years ago um, and take advantage of that. I mean, San Francisco's going to come back, I, I would think. Let's see here. This uh, next article is from BizNow. Herd mentality could trigger healing of San Francisco's battered office market. You know, when, when a lot of these places are talking about how hard office has been hit, it's in markets like San Francisco. You know, I, I always have to tell our investors or, or, you know, friends of mine or whoever that when they're asking about commercial real estate, I'm like, look, it's all relative. Like Nashville office is doing just fine. We collected 99% of our rents throughout the pandemic. But you look at a city like San Francisco, I doubt that very many companies can say anything close to that. Signs of big tech employees announcing the return of employees, sorry, big tech companies announcing the return of employees to offices bodes well for Bay Area office markets, especially San Francisco, where the overall vacancy rate increased by 650 basis points over the past year. Let's see here. Uh, May eventually trigger a domino effect of bringing bodies back to the workplace in mass, accompanied by unique post-pandemic challenges as well as pre-existing issues. Yeah. So far, companies like Uber and Google have reopened offices at limited capacities, with Facebook announcing 10% occupancy starting on May 10th, increasing to 50% after Labor Day. It's the herd mentality. When the big guys go back, everyone is going to say we need to go back, Avis and Young Managing Director Greg Von Faden said. I agree. I mean, look, I, I do think that there are some companies that are just better suited for remote work. I genuinely believe that. I also genuinely believe that there are companies that will never be able to go full remote work. And you think of, I mean, just like culture alone, like let's, let's set this, the work stuff aside. If you don't have a company culture and there's no reason that your people want to be with you, then your job becomes a commodity. And the second that they're offered more, you know, $10 more, they're going to take it, right? Because there's no other, there's no other buy-in for the company. So it's, it's really important to keep that in mind, um, in my opinion. That's, that, that, to me, is the biggest factor of remote work. Um, by the way, guys, if you all have any questions on the commercial real estate that we're talking about live on the show, if you have any questions about commercial real estate investing in general, feel free to drop them in the live chat. Happy to uh, have a conversation and open that, open that up with you guys. Let's see. The continued vaccination roll-on is a crucial factor in triggering the expected stampede back to offices. Yeah, I mean, look, as, as people get vaccinated, they're going to feel more comfortable getting back to work. You know, Nashville's been basically fully open since December, well before vaccines really started rolling out. Um, so they didn't even need it. 
let's see, the standard 150 square foot per employee uh, is likely going to go up to 250 square feet with some employees continuing to work remotely. That's an interesting trend that we've been talking about since the pandemic hit too. You know, companies are going to continue leasing space and they might actually lease just as much space as they did before, but they will have more square footage per employee than what we've been trending. Past 10 years, 15 years, we've been since really since the the, the uh, 2008 crisis, we've been trending towards less and less or square footage per employee and uh, going towards these open floor plans and this and that because companies are able to save money. People are able to collaborate or whatever. But there, I mean, there's plenty of, of proof showing that open work environments are actually not as conducive to work. But now we're starting to see that, okay, we kind of hit the lowest that we should ever go to. Let's go back up and start increasing square footage per employee. So uh, I think 250 square feet per employee for the majority of companies is kind of ideal. I mean, that's really what we recommend is between 250 and 350 square feet per employee, uh, probably closer to that 250 square foot side, depending on what kind of company you are, right? That, that matters. Obviously, a warehousing facility that's mostly manufacturing is going to have way more square footage per, per employee than a tech company would, but that's all relative. Um, let's see. Talking about how they're going to keep lobbies, elevators, common areas sanitized. Landlords are taking precautions. Everybody's just being careful about getting back to work. Uh, basically, what the rest of the article just says is how the COVID precautions are going to take, have a big impact on, on the office environment and how they need to, to be looking at that, um, how landlords should look at that moving forward. Let's see. For the retail world, vaccinations have a double effect in not only providing protection for employees, but also making customers feel safer. Um, let's see. Economic recovery isn't the only issue on the minds of Bay Area inhabitants and potentially those weighing whether to return. A March poll by the Bay Area Council found that the issue of homelessness far surpassed concern about other pressing issues like housing, climate change, wildfires, income inequality, and racial inequality. There were, however, notes of optimism with 87% of respondents expecting that the region's economy will be doing somewhat or much better six months from now. Let's see. Only by building more housing, particularly housing that is affordable for those at the lower end of the economic ladder, can we hope to bend the curve on homelessness. So there you have it. Uh, that's our market watch this week on San Francisco. Seems to me like um, it's a market that's currently struggling, but there's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, as I said, it's an established market. It's going to come back, and everybody's talking about affordable housing in that city. That's been going on for a while. So you know, if you're interested in developing affordable housing, there could be a pretty solid opportunity there for them. All right, let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. I always love these because it is what is trending in this industry. How are things changing? What are we going to see in the future of commercial real estate? Well, this article is from Globestreet.com. Office demand continues its slow climb, but it will take at least a couple of years to find its footing. Office workers may not have yet returned to the office, but data from the first quarter of this year shows that demand is beginning a slow upswing. Positive news for office. Uh, let's see here. We're going to see an office market that's going to take probably at least a couple of years to find its footing again, said Ian Anderson with CBRE. There's no doubt about it. More people are going to be working remotely. 
People are not going to be coming into the office every day of the week anymore. That is absolutely going to pressure demand and a lot of office market fundamentals across the country to the downside. Office will never be the same again, right? It just won't. It can't. Things have changed. We, we skipped ahead about five years into the future uh, that, thanks to COVID. So, you know, look, there are companies that will never come back to the, to the office uh, environment like we've been talking about. Uh, but office space isn't going anywhere. So, uh, in fact, some, some sectors of office space are doing better than ever. Like suburban office is doing really well. Let's see here. The level of renewals, which made up about 70% of leasing activity, indicate that at least for now, most companies are staying put. That's great to see. Um, the glut in office space in both New York and San Francisco is a byproduct of the pandemic-induced distress that will require long-term observation. The New York City office sublease market has seen a large number of additions, with the amount of available space up 47% at the end of 2020. That, to me, just sounds like some people are going out and getting more office space than they really needed. Now that's, that, I mean, that's no, there's no reason for it to hit 40, a number that is up 47%. That's crazy high. Let's see. While the figures are encouraging, demand is not likely to hit pre-pandemic levels in the near future. Lease terms are significantly lower than pre-pandemic norms, and the U.S. office market recorded 37.9 million square feet of negative absorption last quarter. That means 37.9 million square feet came on the market uh, net, right? That's that You take out how much was leased, and that was the net that came on, uh, which is the second worst showing since JLL began tracking the sector 21 years ago. That's pretty wild. Um. I mean, look, and one thing to take into mind, too, again, I know that I keep saying this, but it's very important to remember that this is a generalization. Just because office, the office market across the country had 38 million square feet in negative absorption last quarter doesn't mean that office is struggling across the board. Nashville's doing really well. As you just saw, we had a 140-person job announcement down in a, in a suburb of Nashville. Uh, we just had 8,500 jobs and a whole campus uh, announced in the last couple of months from Oracle. So there are still markets that are doing really, really well. You've just got to look at the fundamentals and pick the, pick the right markets. All right, moving on. This is an article from BizNow. Investors spent record $48.5 billion on housing units in Q2. The demand for housing is as high as it's ever been because people know uh, that, look, just no matter what's going on in the stock market, no matter what's going on with commercial real estate, no matter what's going on with crypto, people have to have a place to live. So whether that's single-family housing portfolios, multifamily apartment complexes, they people are going to live somewhere, right? Um, so, of course, th that sector is going to perform very well. Looks like it hasn't just recovered from the lows of the early coronavirus pandemic. It has begun reaching new heights. Between single-family homes, condos, townhomes, and multifamily units, investors purchased six, nearly 68,000 residences in the second quarter. Uh, this is according to data from Redfin. That represents the most investment purchases in a quarter since at least 2000. That's crazy. That's a, that, I mean, that's a 21-year record. The beginning of Redfin's data. Uh, investors, which Redfin defines as any company or institution purchasing a home rather than an individual, 
spent $48.5 billion to buy all those units, which is also another all-time high. In terms of both the number of purchases and the amount of capital spent, Q2 contained more than double the level of residential investment activity than in the same period last year, which was the nadir of pandemic-driven inactivity. Let's see. 15% more units purchased and an additional $10.4 billion spent over Q1. That's, that's a big jump over Q1. Let's see. Investors see soaring home prices as an opportunity. I, I mean, look, it is. It absolutely is. There is a massive opportunity in the single-family residential market right now because it's so cost-prohibitive in most of these markets to buy a home. Think about all these people that are moving to Nashville that are having, you know, they're, they're one of 30 offers. Uh, well, not all of them are going to go rent an apartment. They're going to want to rent a house until they can find a, ho a home to buy, right? They'll let the market cool down. We'll rent until the market cools down. You know, everybody says that. You've probably heard that. Which, I mean, like if you're in Nashville, there's, there's no way that's going to be happening anytime soon. But that's what people think. They'll just come in. They'll rent until they can find it. So there's an opportunity right there for investors. Investors may also be capitalizing on the home buying market finally calming down slightly for individual buyers. Pending home sales for the four weeks ending July 11th were 10 percent below their 2021 peak, which has reached or which was reached in the last week of May. Let's see. Average home sale price is still about 4K over the average asking price. Think about that. I mean, we're in a market now where buyers don't even have they don't have leverage whatsoever over a seller the average home is selling for $4,000 over asking. And the average home is also, what, $250,000 So, I mean, you're looking at 1% to 3%, 5% maybe sometimes over, average, over the asking price. Investors have been focusing more on single-family homes than ever before, buying them and turning them into rentals, said Redfin. Over 16% of single-family home sales in Q2 were two investors, the highest share in a long time. You know, one thing to note, so I went to Australia uh, a few years ago, and it's interesting. They have a very different housing market than we do here. I mean, completely different. The opportunity for home ownership there is night and day. It's literally the opposite. So I believe 70% of residential units in America are owner-occupied, and 30% are owned uh, as rentals. In Australia, 70% are rentals and 30% are owner-occupied. It's a totally different market. And you look at that and it does really well. I mean, it does really, it's, it's cost prohibitive. You know, people can't buy their, their homes, but it's, it's a different mentality towards a home there than it is here where like a home is more of an investment and, instead of I'm going to live here, right? So you buy it to rent it out. So, I mean, think about it that. The United States has, could more than double the amount of rentals uh, that it has, and we'd probably still have a fine market. Um, it's really interesting to think about. All right, moving on. This next one is from the Wall Street Journal. Startups bet on flexible apartment leases even as employees return to the office. One company, Daydream Apartments, is rebranding as Central and upgrading services in hopes of increasing market share. Interesting. 
Uh, investors are pumping money into real estate startups that are pioneering flexible ways to rent apartments on the belief that remote working trends and new forms of housing demand will remain long after the pandemic is over. That's actually a really interesting point. I, I have a friend who rented an apartment as her office. Uh, I'm sure, maybe not legally, um, but it was because she was able to find a cheaper like an apartment that was big enough for her office and made enough sense for her office that was cheaper than any office space that she could get. Um, I would imagine that she's not the only one that's done that too. So it'd be interesting to see what starts to come out of that. Startups like Sonder and Mint House were founded in the years leading up to the pandemic, offering short-term, fully furnished apartments that could be booked almost as easily as hotel rooms on the internet. They've gotten a boost from the pandemic because of the large number of young professionals who left downtown while the health crisis was the most acute. Now, a company that was formed 18 months ago, which, was, which has backing from an investment group, uh, is rolling out a new name and upgrading services with a hope of increasing market share. The company, which was doing business under the name Daydream Apartments, is changing its name to Central and currently manages a network of 3,000 apartment units in seven U.S. markets, including Los Angeles, Austin, Texas, and Seattle. As central, the company is also rolling out technology, allowing tenants to book any length of stay, whether one night or several years. So the flexibility of leases, whether that's multifamily, commercial, et cetera, doesn't matter, has been a hot topic uh, since the pandemic hit because I think that flexibility, uh, and they talk about it, I just, just got this book, I haven't dived into it yet, rethinking real estate. Uh, I don't know when this book came out. I'd have to go back and check. I got it off of Amazon. Highly recommend it. It's, it, well, it came highly recommended. I haven't read it yet, so don't take my recommendation. Um, I'm trying to see when it was published. Anyways, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I know it's a little bit older, but basically in the book, they, they talk about flexibility being the future of commercial real estate. So it's interesting because I know that this was written well before the pandemic. It's interesting to see that starting to come true because, I mean, the flexibility is kind of the name of the game. If you're a startup, you're growing fast, you need flexibility. If you're a big company that might be facing some technological shifts, you're going to need some flexibility. So, you know, would you be willing to charge a 5% premium on rent and sign a one-year lease? I think it's worth at least considering. I mean, we're, we're getting some astronomical pricing on these restaurants that we're signing one-year leases on because it allows restaurateurs to come in and test out their concept, right? It's the same thing with office space. Yeah, we'll sign a one-year lease. Come in and test out your office concept. We'll sign a one-year retail deal, you know, but charge a premium as a landlord because there's higher risk. You're going to have to deal with more stuff. But tenants are typically willing to pay a higher premium for that flexibility, Right. So, I mean, maybe that's just something to, to think about when you're when you're marketing your your properties. Right. When they're going for lease, like, hey, here's the five year rate. Here's the three year rate. Here's the one year rate. And here's the three to six month rate. I would imagine that somebody who's going to come in and sign a three to six month lease and pay an absolute premium might just sign an extension for another three to six months. Right. And so you'll continue collecting that rent. Now, of course, look, inherently, as the owner, you will have more risk of vacancy. Right. It's just part of it. Uh, but it's at least 
worth looking into, in my opinion. All right, let's move on to private equity deal dive. This week, we are diving into a uh, pretty big uh, private equity uh, JV, it looks like. Going over to Globestreet.com for this one, $5 billion Tricon JV targets single-family rental homes. Imagine that. There is a clear trend um, for single-family right now. The joint venture is targeting the middle market demographic in the U.S. Sunbelt. The Sunbelt is also the most popular uh, region to be buying real estate in right now. Looks like they have entered into a joint venture arrangement with three institutional investors to acquire single-family homes, targeting the middle market demographic in the U.S. Sunbelt. Uh, let's see. They will have an initial equity commitment of $1.4 billion. Investors will have the ability to increase the vehicle size to $1.55 billion, including Tricon's co-investment of $450 million. That represents approximately $5 billion of purchasing power with leverage. Uh, they are expected to acquire more than 18,000 single-family rental homes, primarily from resale channels. JV will complement Tricon's other investment vehicles, which target new single-family rental homes. Um, looks like Tricon will also be the asset manager and property manager for the JV, uh, which is the largest JV that they've done today. Um, let's see here. Tricon has now raised $2 billion of third-party equity commitments year-to-date, and has the capital in place to grow its single-family rental portfolio to nearly 50,000 homes over the next three years. We anticipate growing our portfolio by over 6,000 homes in the coming year and are already well on track with more than 1,500 homes acquired in Q2. It's a lot of homes to go buy, you know, and you think about how this has created a whole new market. You can't go buy 50,000 homes one home at a time. I mean, they're buying these from build-to-rent developers. That is a rapidly growing sector in the commercial real estate development world where these developers are going out, building entire neighborhoods, renting them out, and then selling them to an investment group. The interesting thing about doing these neighborhoods with single-family homes as rentals, you can actually get multifamily debt on them. Uh, lenders will actually look at them as one multifamily investment. So you can get more attractive debt terms than you can on a single-family home investment. So uh, maybe we should cover that sometime, build to rent. I've, I've got a buddy, Bruce McNeilage, um, over at Kenlock Partners. He's an incredible uh, neighborhood developer. He does build to rent. I need to have him on the show and interview him uh, and just talk about build to rent development. So there you have it, future of private equity. Uh, there's going to be a lot of money being pumped into single-family homes. I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Um, so... Keep an eye on that. Maybe invest in some rates uh, or don't. Uh, just go out and build them yourself. Let's look at some prop tech. This week, uh, we're diving into the Wall Street Journal. An Airbnb for pools is making a splash this summer. Selfishly, I love this one. I don't have a pool, uh, but how cool would it be to just you know, grab all your friends like, hey, guys, let's rent a pool for the day. Why not? You don't have to take care of it. You don't have to. I mean, that's just, it's brilliant. Jim Batten's tree-lined swimming pool at his home outside Portland, Oregon, had been sitting untouched since his youngest daughter moved out two years ago. Then in September, he listed it through an online platform for renting private pools. He booked the pool three times within the first two hours. Wow. And says he has hosted 2,700 guests in less than a year. Mr. Batten expects to have earned $111,000 by the end of the summer, which would cover 
the $110,000 he and his wife spent on building the custom pool eight years ago. That's amazing. I love this. This, uh, I mean, everything is a, is a service economy. You know, people are making incredible leaps and bounds with this. Uh, feels nice. We didn't have to spend all $110,000 for nothing. Uh, he is one of 13,000 pool owners in 125 markets across the U.S., including cities like L.A., Austin, uh, who are cashing in on their underused pool by listing it with the company Swimply. Swimply. Uh, which some media reports have dubbed the Airbnb for backyard pools. Swimply said its owners have made about 122,000 bookings since the start of 2020. That's crazy. Let's check them out. Swimply. Escape to a pool near you. Um, that's pretty cool. So look at that. For, okay, $45 an hour for uh, an attractive pool in Burbank, Los Angeles. Oak Forest Oasis in Houston, Texas, $30 an hour. I mean, come on. Why wouldn't you go rent a pool for 30 to $45 an hour if it was private and you had a bunch of friends? Let's see. They may only be in Los Angeles. I wonder if they're in Nashville. Oh, look at that. Cool. They're in Nashville. Um, 37207. That's right down the street from me. Beautiful mid-century 20 by 40. Uh, two hour minimum, $80 per hour. East Nashville Backyard Haven, $85 an hour. This is really cool. I actually really like this. I think that this is such a brilliant idea. Um, because think about it. I mean, how often are you really using your pool? I mean, it was when I, when I was at an apartment complex, out of the 250 people that lived there, there was always the same 20 people that, that went to the pool. But, you know, I'm thinking about my grandparents' pool right now, right? Like, they use it once a month, and it's when my cousins go over, uh, my little cousins go over. So, like, why not rent it out every weekend, make a, make a couple thousand bucks a weekend? I mean, that's, that's really cool. All right, well, there you have it for PropTech. Let's dive into reading REITs. This week... We are, uh, I, I bet you guys can guess it. We're going to be talking about no place like home, uh, single family homes. U.S. equity markets rebounded from an early week dive as investors shrugged off COVID concerns following an historically strong start to corporate earnings season and better than expected housing market data. American exceptionalism was the theme as COVID concerns across international markets have created a Goldilocks environment for domestic-focused equities and real estate markets, despite surging inflation. Rebounding from its sharpest decline since May, the S&P 500 rallied 2.0% on the week to close the week. Uh, at fresh record highs, residential REITs and home builders were among the leaders. The housing market cooldown was short-lived as the combination of soaring rents, easing supply shortages, and lower mortgage rates appear to have spurred a second wave of home buying activity. Real estate earnings season kicked off this week. Beat and raise was the theme with particularly impressive results from home builders, manufactured housing, and industrial rates. Pretty crazy. Um, let's see here. Let's see where will be that. Single family rental coming in at, what is this? The, for the week? Wow. Is that just the week it's up 1.3%? That's what it looks like. I could be reading that wrong. But yeah, yeah, it's up 1.3% this week, which is 
the fourth highest. I can't believe prisons are still on there. Wow, wow. Whoops. Anyway, um, we're not going to talk about the (laughs) ethics of prison REITs. Uh, Casino and gaming, 2.5%. Manufactured homes, 2.5%. Prison REITs, 1.6%. Net lease, 1.4%. Single-family rental, 1.3%. Right up there with apartment REITs. It's pretty cool. Let's see here. Looks like in terms of their year-to-date performance, housing and residential real estate is up 26.5%, which is among the highest on this list. Commercial real estate, 26.6%. Got to throw that in there because if y'all have been following for a while, you know I'm not the biggest fan of single family. I just I can't get behind it as an investment. I see why people do it. I get it. I, got, I love that there are people making money in it. That just goes to show you you can make money doing anything in real estate. I just can't get behind single family uh, investing. Uh, weak performance, 2.3%. That's do, it's doing great. I mean, I can, you know, hey, look, I can not like something and it can still do well, okay? Let's, let's leave that there. Um, let's see. Housing starts rebound in June. Look at that. I mean, you could see. It's, it's amazing looking at these charts and seeing 2008 on there because it just absolutely takes this massive dip. And then you can see when 2020 hit. So not quite as bad as 2008, but look how quickly it rebounded. I mean, it got right back up there, and now we're even back. We're, we're over where we were before everything tanked, which is pretty remarkable to see. Home builders remain confident despite rising costs. I mean, that's a pretty big factor you've got to take into account when you're looking at, at single-family homes right now because it is so, so expensive to build. And look at that, sales, future sales are still doing well. Yeah, sorry. If you're listening on the podcast, uh, I recommend you join us live, 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time on YouTube. Now you can kind of look at these charts with us because they are pretty interesting charts to look at. Um, if, uh, if you do want to take a look at them, uh, you know, these are, of course, always in the show notes. Seekingalpha.com is where these graphs are. All right, well, now we are moving on to... This week's wild card. This week, I wanted to talk about ESG investing. Uh, This is a pretty interesting uh, world that I am kind of now, just now diving into. Um, You know, it's honestly, it's one of those factors that you'd think, like, hey, it just kind of makes sense. Like, why wouldn't we be doing that in the first place? Um, but it's it's trending, and there's a lot of money coming behind it. So highly recommend ESG investing. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Um, and it's a way that people use, uh, people use these standards to build a more ethical portfolio. Um, actually, every single project that my firm does at Hamilton, every development is ESG. And... Uh, that is because we actually care about our neighborhoods. You know, if you're a real estate investor, you should care about your neighborhood. For, for so long, um, you know, there are too many investors that just have not cared um, about their neighborhoods, which is kind of crazy to me, honestly. Um, but that's just the way it is, right? Uh, so it's good to see that this younger generation of developers are coming in and actively fighting to change it. So ESG is a form of sustainable investing that considers an investment's financial returns and its overall impact. Of course, the money matters, right? We're not going to pretend that it doesn't. But can you take maybe a little bit of hit on the financial impact 
or what or or spend just a little bit more money on the front um, in order to have a bigger financial impact. You know, I think that um, that's worth looking at because it's not always just about the bottom line. Some things are relatively intangible. Yeah, maybe you got to spend. 5% more to make it ESG uh, or to, you know, add solar panels or whatever. But you'll usually make that money back and some. It may be harder to quantify, but people just, they like that. An investment's ESG score measures the sustainability of an investment in three specific categories, obviously environmental, social, and corporate governance. You've likely heard of voting with your dollars or using money to make purchases at businesses you believe in. But choosing your local bookstore over Amazon isn't the only way you can make an impact. There are strategies uh, like ESG investing where you can actually do that. So let's dive into what they think are environmental, social, and governance. Uh, environmental factors include how a company mitigates its greenhouse gas emissions, whether the products uh, the company creates are sustainable, if it uses natural resources efficiently, and how it deals with recycling. So in construction, that could be you know, how are you, like, where are you sourcing your materials from? What kind of materials are you using? Um, you know, what kind of, of, you know, machines are being used to build uh, this project, um, et cetera, et cetera. Social. The social component includes factors both inside and outside the company. Does the business participate in community development, such as providing affordable housing or fair lending? Does it carefully consider diversity and equal employment opportunity in its hiring? Does the company prioritize human rights everywhere, or does or it does business including other everywhere does business including other countries? So, of course, if you're going to ethically source your labor as well, there you go. Social, uh, there's there's a good social component to it. You know, if you're going to hire children in a sweat factory in you know Asia, that is a massive strike against you. And we've seen how that has started to impact companies um, left and right. You know, people find out about, you know, big shoemakers or whatever, you know, doing that. I mean, it's it doesn't fare well. Governance or corporate governance refers to the company's leadership and board, including whether executive pay is reasonable and not, you know, a thousand times the uh, average employee or whatever. Um, if the company's board of directors is diverse and whether it's responsive to shareholders. All of that stuff matters, right? So why should you care? Well, uh, they can actually get higher returns as an investment, which is pretty exciting to see. Uh, you know, this is going into, uh, this is more on the stocks, bonds front as well. Uh, but I can talk about a project that we're doing that's ESG too. Uh, Just Capital ranks companies based on factors such as whether they pay fair wages or take steps to protect the environment. It created the Just U.S. Large Cap Diversified Index, uh, which includes the top 50% of companies in the Russell 1000, based on those rankings. Since its inception, the index has returned 15.94% on an annualized basis compared with the Russell 1000's 14.76% return. Pretty interesting. Lower risk. Uh, let's see. ESG funds have even managed to post strong performance during 2020. Of 26 sustainable index funds analyzed by investment research company Morningstar, 24 outperformed comparable traditional funds in the first quarter of 2020. You can see left and right, there are so many reasons. So, I mean, one, of course, there are ways for, uh, I mean, look, just morally, ethically, it makes sense to start considering this kind of investing. But logically, I mean, if you're able to get better returns, 
why wouldn't you go through and start doing all this stuff? It's exciting to see that these things matter. I mean, we're doing this on every single one of our projects. Every project has to be ESG oriented. It's got to be walkable. It's got to be sustainable. It's got to be community engaging. So I told you guys I would tell you about one project. Well, you all are probably familiar with the, the wash. If you've watched any of our videos, I've done a couple of videos on this, a, a couple of vlogs. Uh, it is a car wash that I am uh, converting into micro restaurants um, and a bar, right? So we're, we're being sustainable. We're reutilizing the building, the existing building. So they're being sustainable there. We're not just filling a landfill. Um, we're being very conscientious about the kind of construction that we're using, of course. The tenants that we have going into it are the, for the five restaurants. I'm opening the bar. So, but the five restaurants are either woman-owned or person of color-owned, which was a diversity initiative that we didn't actually set out to achieve. We just found that that happened when we gave everyone the opportunity. So that was pretty exciting to see. Um, corporate governance, you know, obviously we have a very diverse role here um, or a diverse team here, which is exciting. So, you know, look, ESG investing is just, it's the future. Right. And it's funny that this actually has a term to it because it kind of used to be like, hey, are you a, an ethical company? Um, and now now it's actually being rewarded as such, because for years there have been so many unethical investment firms, not just in real estate. Right. Just all across the world. Miguel is saying good to hear from you again, Tyler. That's awesome. That you and your company are a part of ESG investing. I've seen ESG lately, but never looked it up. I'll look more into it. Love that, Miguel. Thanks for the kind words, man. Highly recommend it. ESG is very interesting. We're writing an article on it right now just because I think that ESG investing for commercial real estate uh, is very important. Um, it'll be, again, part of the, the future of, of real estate. I think that um, not only real estate, but all, all investing in general, you'll have all of these hedge funds and private equity funds that that will be a box that they want to check whenever they are placing capital in a firm. You know, it's, it, do you have, do you, do you meet diversity initiatives? Do you meet ESG? Do you meet our return profile? Do you meet our project profile? I think it's going to be one of the big factors that you're going to have to hit in order to raise funds from these other firms. So keep that in mind when you're out there um, looking at your projects. It's, it's actually not that difficult. Um, to go about this process. It's just, it's conscious, it's conscious capitalism, right? It's going out there and just being a little conscientious and putting a little more effort into what you're doing uh, and being intentional. So there you have it for this week's Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. My name is Tyler Cobble. I'm your host. Uh, thanks again for joining me as we dive into uh, this week's news in, in the world of commercial real estate. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Hit that bell so you get notified every time we go live, which is Mondays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard. If you are listening on the podcast, please leave us a rating and review so that we can continue to show up at the top. Um, our, our following on the podcast has actually grown pretty significantly, which is really exciting to watch. Uh, but those reviews certainly help, and we will see you next week.